Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Chris Brenneman, Sue Boardman, and Bill Dowling, contributors to the Gettysburg Cyclorama. Our guests for PA Books today are Chris Brenneman, Bill Dowling, and Sue Boardman, and they are the authors of this book, The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point of the Civil War on Canvas. Sue, we'll start with you. A whole book just about the cyclorama? And that was just skimming the surface, at least in the beginning. Um, there was a book that was previous to this one that I wrote, and it was basically just a history and bringing sort of the, the, the story of cycloramas and the Gettysburg cyclorama up to the present day. But Chris took it to the next level. He identified every horse face plant in the cyclorama. So I think it was a good combination. For someone who has never seen it, doesn't know what it is, what is it? The cyclorama is a giant painting. It's 42 feet tall, 377 feet in circumference. Uh, it's at the Gettysburg National Military Park Museum and Visitor Center. And it's such a giant round painting that you feel like you're almost outside in the middle of it. It's like the IMAX movie of the old days. It was done back in 1884, so it's 131 years old. And when it was moved into the new Visitor Center in 2008, they totally restored it. So it looks like it's brand new again. Can I, can I add, all, sure, add sure. something to that? People who would see a cyclorama would think on the surface that it is just a large painting, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's an immersive experience. Cycloramas are presented to the viewer in such a way that there are certain important parts to the presentation. So you're on an elevated viewing platform, so you can see it at the horizon line to open up a sweeping landscape. It's a hyperbolically shaped thing to give a three-dimensionality. You are so in the moment in front of a cyclorama. So it's not just a big painting, it's so much more. And it dates back to when did you say? 1884. Uh, those giant paintings, they were like the movie theaters of their day. And because it's such an immersive experience, you actually feel like you're in it. It's, it's like a 3D movie almost of the old days. Um, now, before, it was at older buildings in Gettysburg, and it was in bad condition, and some of the elements were missing. Some of the sky had been cut off the top. Uh, the diorama of real objects that lead down to the painting had been lost. You weren't on a raised platform. And so it didn't have the effect that it has today. But thanks to the Gettysburg Foundation, uh, it's a nonprofit group that raised money to build the new visitor center and totally restore the painting. <laughs> The way it's presented today is the way it would have looked 131 years ago when it was brand new. And the foundation did a really great job in preserving, restoring, and presenting the painting the way it was meant to be shown. Well, back then in the 1880s, would you have found dioramas about different topics in different parts of the country? Okay, cycloramas themselves were kind of a new thing on, on the scene. 
uh, America saw its first cyclorama in 1876 at the Philadelphia Centennial, and it was Parisian-made. It was a European cyclorama. The public so enjoyed it that an American entrepreneur decided to take it to, to create one, have one created for the American audience. So he, they, he and the lead artist, Paul Philippoteau, came up with Gettysburg. So there were four Gettysburgs that sort of set, set the phenomenon in, in motion. But once they hit the market, you had one for the Battle of Shiloh, the Battle of Vicksburg, the Battle of Atlanta, Manassas, the Crucifixion, Custer's Last Fight. So it was the, the first art for the masses, and it covered all the topics that make big panoramas so amazing. So when they decided to do one, how did they go about doing it? I mean, had a, is it all one canvas, or is a lot of different canvases sewed together? Or? What are the nuts and bolts of it? Well, um, they originally had 14 pieces of canvas, and they sewed them <coughs> together in a giant round studio. Then they primed it, painted it all as one big piece in the round. When they were finished, they cut a seam and rolled it up into a roll, and that's how they moved it. And then they rehang it in a giant round room, uh, create the raised platform, the foreground objects that lead down to it, and that would turn the new building into the cyclorama building. And most big cities had one. Uh, if you think of cycloramas like movie theaters of their day, Gettysburg was like the Star Wars of cycloramas. It was it was the biggest hit of all. So they had to build a spe separate building just for this, wherever it was going to be displayed. Well, that was part of the hype. So so let's say you live in Chicago. Now all of a sudden, they built this big iron building, and no one was allowed inside for a year, while they worked feverishly on creating this amazing thing that the public was going to get to see. So a year out, I mean, you're just, everybody's wondering, what are they doing in the big round building? And then opening night was a huge spectacle. And so lots of hype involved in it. But a year's work went into, the, from inception, from conception, to actual opening night, a year's worth of work. You would have a team of some 20 artists who were picked by the lead artist to do certain very specific parts. So you would have a, a man whose only job was to paint horses. And he's going to paint all the horses in the whole cyclorama because it would lend itself to consistency. If you had five guys doing horses, you've got five different styles of horses. If you've got one guy doing all the horses, it's going to have a very, a very good consistency to it. So the lead artist would have to hire the team. He would go to the site that he's going to represent in this massive work. He's going to do an awful lot of legwork, take pictures, have um, photographs taken, have uh, sketches made on the site. He would speak to people who were involved in the historic moment that we're, that we're representing. And then he's the guy who's got to go back and supervise the entire process, a full year's worth of work. Sounds expensive. $50,000 he was paid for the initial, the initial commission, which in today's money is $1.3 million. In, in the moment it's depicting is, in the title of the book, um, the turning point in the American Civil War on canvas. The, what what it is is Pickett's Charge, the culmination of the three-day Battle of Gettysburg, uh, and and that gets lost a lot of times. And uh, um, you know it it's it has it has a, an appeal, an historic appeal, right? um, an artistic appeal, right? and you know the nuts and bolts of how this thing was done and put together. Uh, it's 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 a fascinating story. Um, so it. it it covers a, a, a myriad of subjects, not, not just painting. 
not just, and it's an American treasure, because they'll tell you there's, there's, there's only two left in the world that... Uh, in this country. In, the, in, in this, this country, country okay, um, pertaining to the American Civil War. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you're going to be able to get to see it at Gettysburg, you know, but it, that's, I think, was one of the things that it has lasted and is so popular to today. Is it has a mass appeal. So you just don't have to be interested in, in history or, or Gettysburg or, uh, you know, they have appreciation for uh, uh, art and how this thing was constructed uh, and put together. Uh, that the, it, it, it's a good story. It's there's, a good story. There's another cyclorama somewhere in the country? Uh, yes, in Atlanta. The Battle of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which is just being restored uh, about a month and a half ago, I think, they closed it down, and they're restoring theirs. So in a couple years, the Atlanta one will reopen, and it'll look just as good as ours does. So that's really exciting. Now, it sounds like when you were putting this book together, you it was not easy to track down the, where all the <laughs> cycloramas were and where they moved from one place to another. Was that your job? No, that was Sue's job. Oh. That was my job. <clears throat> um, that was how I got involved in the project, was as the research historian, because you know you set to work to do this, this wonderful um, conservation and restoration work, but you need to know a lot of the backstory to do that, and there was an incredible shortage of written material about it. So I got to go out there and practice my forensic research skills. And it, was, <laughs> it was incredibly rewarding and fun and interesting to do. I mean, were there times when you knew the, that one of the cycloramas was in one place and you couldn't figure out where it went from there? Oh, absolutely, because there was four of them and they did all move around. They all started in a permanent rotunda, which is the buildings that held them. But as, as, the, um, as it started to wane, the phenomenon of cycloramas started to wane, they started to move around to cities that didn't have them. They would trade them out. Philadelphia would want this one and the city would want this one, so they would move everywhere. And it was darn near impossible to track them in the beginning. Even now, we're not completely sure what happened to two of the four. So, uh, and what did happen to some of them was pretty interesting as well. You said one of them was went to, is it Sioux, Sioux City? Where, Sioux City, Iowa. And it had a storm that knocked down the a building? A typhoon, they referred to it in the newspapers, that blew the, the roof off the building and freezing rain poured down on the, that was the original Chicago version, and it was destroyed. And how long would these stay in a town when they would move there. I and mean, if you have to build a building for it and go to all that expense. The buildings were, it, that's interesting. The initial buildings were permanent structures. But once they started to move around, they could throw up a multi-sided iron building in a matter of, of just a few days and then move them in and move them out. And they may stay for a week, a month. A World's Fair would last six months, nine months, that sort of thing. So and anywhere from a week to a year. One of them played, was it the Chicago one? Was there for 10 years? Initially, we thought so until um, when it was ready to, when, when Chicago earned the right to host the um, Columbian Expo, the White City, they wanted to refurbish the painting so that it could be there in, on view for the many, many hundreds and, and thousands of people that came. But it was in bad shape, and they learned that the Boston version, which was the second of the four, had already been refurbished. So it got the the absolute honor of being the one that the World's Fair goers got to see. Where'd you find all this documentation? Newspapers. I think between Chris and I, we probably read every newspaper that was written between <laughs> 1883 and 1893, probably, or 1993. Were they profitable? Initially, very, very profitable. But motion pictures 
drew off their audiences. And so they, uh, several went into receivership and went bankrupt. And was it the same artist who painted all the Gettysburg? The four originals. It was so popular that there were some what we call buckeyes in the business. A buckeye is often referred to something like uh, a painting that's done in mass to hang at a hotel wall. So the buckeyes were knockoffs. Uh, if you were going to knock off something, wouldn't you choose something like a watch or you know, a handbag? But no, they're knocking off these massive paintings. So um, there were upwards of possibly a dozen repro versions of the Gettysburg. Of that kind of size? Right. And so they confused the tracking because, okay, is it a real one or is it a Buckeye? And that's what we went through an awful lot with the trying to sort them out. And Sue found out a lot more details about which cities they went to than she knew before. Uh, her original book was written back in 2008, and over the years she found out a lot more, and that got integrated into this new book. So uh, it was really exciting, some of the new things that she found out. And the one that's in Gettysburg now was originally? The second version, the Boston version. Boston. And what, what, tell me the, the story of that. It's beginning, what's, what's the history of the one that is now in Gettysburg? Okay, it had a long, it, it had a history that makes you scratch your head and wonder how it survived. Um, okay, so it's in Boston from 1884 to 1889. Now in 89, the audiences were waning. Philadelphia at that time was showing, was it the Crucifixion or Custer, do you recall? Whichever I one remember. it was. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember which one, because I had run across both and I nailed it down and then forget. But you have to read the book. So anyway, um, so so 1889, they're going to, Philadelphia decides they want an, a Gettysburg back because theirs had moved on. So they negotiated with Boston, let's trade for a year. At that time, Gettysburg's, the Boston version that we have at the park was refurbished in order to be presentable to Philadelphia. And I won't ruin Chris's little secret that he discovered at that time what was included in the picture, but hold that, hold that thought, I'll, 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 I'll defer in a minute. Um, so, so Boston's version then goes to Philly for a year. Now, before it's going to be sent back to Boston, Chicago gets word they get the World's Fair. They want a Gettysburg. They want the best of the four. They're going to get our Boston version. So it goes out and it's on display in Chicago. Fair's over in 94. They keep it till 96. But by 96, motion pictures have been on the scene now about eight years. People are stopped, stopped going to see Cyclorama. So Boston gets packaged up. Not gently. They're actually, in order to fit it in the shipping box, they're going to whack off the sky, 14 feet of it, and um, roll it all up in a box and ship it back to Boston. We're done. So Boston takes it. They don't want to put it back on display. So they throw it behind the building on the back lot. And there it will lay for almost 14 years. It will rain on it, snow on it. It'll be vandalized. It'll be set on fire. And then a, a department store owner in Newark hears about it sends an attorney up to buy it sight unseen. He shows it around in pieces for a year, but then gets wind of the big reunion in Gettysburg, the 1913 50th anniversary of the battle, when 55,000 veterans will come to town. So he will send it to Gettysburg, supposedly for, as a temporary thing. It never leaves. So it's in Gettysburg for about 40 years, almost more than 40, in private hands, and then the National Park Service acquires it, and then it undergoes a lot of stress until it reaches the foundation's hands in 2005 and comes back to life. Well, the part that she was talking about is the refurbishment, and that was really exciting because we didn't know the painting had been re refurbished. This was and in? In 1889. 1889, okay. And uh, the way we found out is we actually noticed a couple things that got changed in the painting. Uh, 
one of the first things you noticed, there was a, a wagon that got turned into a cannon that was right in the middle of the angle, in the middle of the action. So we started checking the old pictures versus the new pictures. We found uh, more flags were added, more troops were added. And the most exciting thing was General Meade wasn't originally there. They added in General Meade later, which is really exciting because after it was in Boston for a few more months after the refurbishment, it went to Philadelphia. And General Meade was from Philadelphia. So it totally makes sense. They got to have the hometown guy in the painting. Uh, but we didn't know it was refurbished until we started doing the research for this book. And it was kind of a mystery the way first we found out it had been changed. Then it was, why was it changed? When was it changed? Who changed it? Who changed it? Where did they get the suggestions? And uh, through some legwork and checking different things, we were able to find out that they closed it down and they were listening to the suggestions of the veterans that were coming to see it. And that's where they got the ideas to change things, which uh, it's almost like when I compared it to Star Wars, it's almost like George Lucas's special edition of Star Wars, where he adds better special effects and re-releases the movie. So we sort of had the special edition of Gettysburg. And that was really exciting because it was unknown before. So, Bill, when they decided to do the book, oh, go ahead. No, I just wanted to flesh out a point. Um, you know, this is stuff that they're, they're very conversant in, and we talk about this stuff all the time. We assume people know all the time who the characters who we're talking about. So I just wanted General Meade was the, was the general in charge of the Union troops uh, at the Battle of Gettysburg. So here, here you have the leader of the, of the Union forces, right? Uh, the guy who beats the iconic Robert E. Lee on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, turning point in the American Civil War. He's not even in the picture, okay? So uh, I just wanted to... to Thank you, to, That was insightful. <laughs> yeah. You're right. We, yeah. just, we, we just assume everybody yeah. knows. Yeah, so um, that's who General Meade was. Right? So uh, when, when this idea for doing the book came about, you, you were brought in to do the photographs? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's, uh, it, it was a great journey. You know? uh, um, Chris approached me, uh, and uh, you know, he came up with the genesis of this idea. You know, uh, Sue's book was already out there. Uh, and uh, Chris, in his function uh, as a, a guide and also uh, an employee of the, uh, uh, the, the foundation, Gettysburg Foundation, um, part of their, both of their jobs are, um, well, Sue presents programs, as does uh, uh, Chris. And Chris is up with this thing day after day after day, uh, looking at it, observing it. And uh, I can tell you from my perspective, you know, I haven't seen it as uh, in the program as as uh, often as these people have. But uh, anybody who hasn't seen the picture, the, the cyclorama, if you come to Gettysburg, there's two places you got to see. There's two things you got to see. You have to see the Gettysburg cyclorama, and you got to stand on top of a little round top. Okay. Um, number one on the hip. Number one, number two on the hip parade. All right. Um, but uh, these, uh, the, the picture, Chris uh, you know, uh, approached me about the idea. He said, boy, that's, that sounds like, a, you know, it, it, could, uh, it, it could fly, you know? And uh, uh, what we did, we, f we first started off by uh, doing some um, then and now photos of the book. Uh, because uh, I'm, I'm sure the authors will tell you uh, the, uh, the, the preliminary uh, f uh, photography that was done prior to the painting uh, 
paint putting, putting uh, being put on canvas uh, was uh, helped by the uh, the panoramic photography that was taken of the ground. Right? So uh, there's a picture of of you and Chris on a scissors lift. To, oh yeah, now, that was why fun. Was that, why was that important? To you be well, what, what we tried to do, what we tried to replicate, was those uh, pictures uh, that. Uh, 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 Mr. Tipton did. Um, he was a Gettysburg photographer. When did he do those again, Chris? 18... 1882? In eight, the spring, in eight, May. Yeah, 1882. Uh, uh, and um, we, uh, we did a little research. Chris and, and Sue did a little research as to uh, how did he gain these perspectives in 1882 uh, from up high. And... Um, so there was, uh, at one point, there was a tower constructed in the area of the angle, uh, which is duplicated in the uh, Picus charge and duplicated in the, the, the cyclorama painting. So what we tried to do to duplicate those, uh, uh, those pictures is to get up to the same perspective that those pictures taken in 1882 were taken from. And yeah, it was really fun to see Chris tried that thing down the road. <laughs> <laughs> Did the artist Paul Filippito work from photographs? Yeah, he built a 15-foot high platform, and they had a camera take 10 pictures in every direction from that raised position. And we tried to copy those pictures as exactly as we could of the modern terrain. Uh, what's kind of neat, he even had people stand at different places in the distance uh, for scale. So we could keep the size of the figures right as they got farther and farther away. And we got some friends that were in the neighborhood to stand at different places to try to replicate those pictures. Actually, you can see Sue is one of those people in one of, in one of the pictures. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we wanted to get the exact same terrain photographs as what the author used to make the painting. And we did a really good job. Bill's photos came out really well. Uh, you can see the landscape is still just like in the painting. Uh, so we were very happy. And as I was studying the painting, I also needed those photographs to try to line up modern objects with different objects in the painting to, to make sure they were right and accurate. And what I found out was they're amazingly accurate. Landscape-wise, that painting is just the most minute details are spot on. It just amazes me. What's the same and what's different now from when the battle took place and when these 1880-some photographs were taken? Well, the role of the land is almost exactly the same. I mean, most of the landscape is really, really spot on. Uh, of course, now you have monuments in place of where there would have been soldiers during the battle. But if you imagine that wherever there's monuments in the picture, there's soldiers in the painting, it comes out really well. Um, there's maybe a few less trees in the painting than there is today because a lot of people had to cut down a lot of trees after the battle to repair their fences for firewood, stuff like that. So there's one or two areas where you can see just a little bit farther in the artist pictures than you can today, because the park is trying to keep it looking like 1863, not 1882, necessarily. But uh, in general, very, very good. Um, you can see the trees that were planted to decorate the National Cemetery, for example. They wouldn't have been there. But they were in the artist's pictures, and he didn't necessarily know that, so they made it into the painting. Uh, Sue found some other things, too, that were modern that he didn't put in the painting because he knew they, they were too new. What were they? Well, one of them was a massive um, resort hotel 
that was built in Gettysburg between 1868 and 69. It was called the Cato Lacine Springs Hotel, and it was one of the favorite spots for tourists. And it sits on the western skyline. And it, it was captured in the photographs, but somehow he knew not to include that in, in, the, in the painting. But tell me about him, Phil, uh, Paul Philip Paul Philip yeah. Well, he was born in, in 1846, um, so he's, he's the contemporary of the men who, who he is depicting on the canvas. And he's uh, born in Paris. He learned his trade from his father, Henry. I think it's Felix Henry, Philip and so initially when the first Gettysburg was commissioned, it was the father-son team that was commissioned. But then the father was, was uh, elderly and ill, and so he passed away sometime during the process of the second version, and the son continued the process for the full four versions. And did he do other cycloramas on other he topics? He did. The, one of the ones that is still extant today is in Europe, and it's called Waterloo, the Battle of Waterloo. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. Anybody who visits Europe, that's uh, one of the things you want to see. Was that the only thing he did or does, are there other no. paintings of his around? He did portraiture. That was his specialty and he even a little a bit after his cyclorama years went into what they call the uh, oriental phase of art where he spent an awful lot of time in Egypt in Cairo and taught art and so he, he uh, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, one of the very first editions was illustrated by Paul Philip Was he a big celebrity at the time? He was known in the art world, not, he was probably in the top 50, possibly, of world-renowned artists. Um, I, I, that's a very good question, actually. That might be worthy of more research, actually. Well, I want to ask something else, because I just flipped open to this while you were talking about, the, I, I want to not miss this, the, the New York one at some point was cut up into pieces and they went to veterans. Yes. Were you able to track down where any of the pieces are? Four of them. The first two were um, known to be in the National Park Service collection, and the second two, somewhere around 2010, turned up at a fine arts auction directed by Pook and Pook, which is a known entity today in that world. And the interesting thing is that you would really have to be not only a Gettysburg buff, but a cyclorama buff to recognize what they were, because they're out of context. So let's say you have this piece of painting about five feet high, maybe three feet wide, and all it is is a battery of artillery rushing forward right at you. So that was taken out of the most easternmost view of the Gettysburg Cyclorama, but if you weren't familiar with the Cyclorama, how would you know what that is? So clearly someone who did know the Cyclorama, a gentleman by the name of Craig Bashine, actually acquired them, and he is a big Gettysburg buff, a big one. So did the auction catalog have that this was part of a Cyclorama? It or? did. They it had did. done their research. Yes. Did it go for a lot of money? $15,000. Have to be a big Gettysburg fan. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Because they, they had to go together. You couldn't buy just one. Well, I was going to say what fascinates me is how many more pieces of it could be out right. there somewhere right. that someone doesn't know what they have. Some historical society in New York State or, uh, you know, former veterans post or something. Or current ones who were based on former. The Grand Army Post may have become the American Legion Post mm -hmm. in certain towns. They could still have that hanging on the wall. So this is one that's what, how big? That well, the painting was this, was in the, in the, Roughly the size of ours. All four of them were within a certain range of size. And how big is that again? And so, oh, uh, ours is 377 by 42. And of that, there's only four small pieces that you've so been far, able to track down? So far. Hmm. But I've, I, I've got my money. They're out there. 
<laughs> if somebody has the part that has General Hancock or yeah. General Meade or one of yeah. the really famous people in it, boy, I'm, I'm sure the price tag would jump right up because of the yeah. you know name recognition. Can you describe the experience when you go to the Psychorama right now and you walk in? Like, what? How do you walk in? What do you see? And what's the show like? Well, you come up an escalator and it's dark. So that kind of takes away your perspective of what you're looking at. And you get into this large, dark room, and then they gradually light parts of the painting up as they're telling the story of Pickett's charge. And there's a, you know, a very elaborate narration with sound effects and uh, explosions you know, mimicking the cannonade before the charge and the sounds of gunfire. So it's really meant to kind of immerse the visitor like you're in the middle of the battle. And then as the program goes on, it eventually gets lighter and lighter till you can fully see the whole painting. And uh, at the end of the show, then you also have time with it fully lit up to walk around and enjoy it. So it's almost like you're transported to another place. That's what it's meant to, to do. It's like you're being transported in time and space. It could be a very moving experience for some people. The, the, the authors will tell you that... Uh, um, even the originals, it, it, it brought some of these veterans to tears. Um, I, I must say, for my part, um, you know, the foundation uh, and the restorers, they did a magnificent job. Um, not only in the restoration, but what I'm talking about, what we're talking about now, is it, 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 the program that they, they put together. Uh, it is, it's moving. It, 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 it truly is. You know? And uh, so not only did they, they restore the painting, um, but uh, and part and parcel of the experience is the program and the way it's presented. And uh, what, what, what also draws you in is the diorama. Um, you, you, you stand on this platform and you look at this thing and um, you can't tell Diorama. These are these, you know, 3D physical objects that are uh, in the foreground, and you're challenged to, you know, to. Well, where does that begin? Where does that end? And where does the painting begin? Uh, which really uh, enhances uh, the original experience. And um, kudos to the people who did that. Uh, you know, I agree because the challenge of that was that the the original the, the Cyclorama in situ in Boston was you would enter through a dark tunnel and you would go up a dark, darkened spiral staircase designed to take away the outside world in your mind. You come up on the platform and then it's, it's lit and all around you, you are there. You're on the battlefield. So while that was an amazing experience for many folks who saw it and they were, uh, many people we have, we have excerpts of letters and, and commentary that they made. The challenge for the park is we've got generations of Americans coming to our park now the average age of a student is middle school, eighth grade. They're wired. They are connected. They are electronic, driven. So how, how do you put that person on the stage and just stand there and look at a painting? So, so there was this strong pull to make it relevant to them while still respecting the original presentation. And I think they did a pretty spectacular job. Yes. You get this very moving program, and then at the end of it, you have t moments to stand there and just let it wash over you while you're looking out there at that vast landscape. And sometimes you forget. You can't climb out there and, and touch it. It's, it becomes real. And this opened, this, the current site for it opened when? 
2008. September, the end of September was the grand opening of the new museum and that was the centerpiece. And this is its third location at Gettysburg? Yes. The first one was temporary, you said? Well, 50 years? 50 year temporary, but that's because it was in private hands and then toward the end of that tenure the park took, um, took custody, but they had bigger concerns, of course, than just that. So, and then, of course, General President Eisenhower put out an initiative called Mission 66. And what that said was that in 1966, it would be the 50th anniversary of the National Park Service. And by the way, their 100th birthday is next year. So as an initiative to improve visitor centers or exhibits throughout the country at national parks, money was disseminated under this initiative to do that. So Gettysburg's Cyclorama and their park got a new visitor center and it was the big white um, building. It was, it was uh, designed by Richard Neutra. He was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. It was quite an impressive thing in its day. Of course, it, the building outlived itself, its own usefulness, but that was building number two. And building number three is its current home. Was it controversial where it was located and, and was knocking it down controversial? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, its location at the time seemed to make sense. The Park Service mission then wasn't nearly as strong as it is today of preservation and, and that sort of thing. So it was plopped right on the sacred ground of the Gettysburg battlefield. Today, you wouldn't see that happen. But at that time, it was cool to go see a painting that discussed this scene and then go right outside the door and there was the scene. So there was some logic to the thinking, although it wasn't in keeping with current preservation thinking. Um, so so its, its removal, the, the, the nature of the controversy surrounding its removal wasn't that it needed to go, because I think that was generally accepted. It was the process by which it was removed. Um, there were outside entities that thought it should have been repurposed, which would have undermined the whole purpose of restoring the battlefield. Now, when Paul Philippeteau was given the charge of doing this painting, what what was supposed to be included in it? I mean, was, uh, was he allowed to take liberties with what actually happened or capture a moment in time? Well, I think they selected the high water mark, the <clears throat> climatic moment of Pickett's Charge, because that was is, is seen today and was starting to become seen at that time as the turning point of the war. So it was seen as perhaps the most climatic moment of the whole war. So that's what he was trying to depict in the painting. Uh, but I think he definitely had some license to show uh, all the interesting incidents that were happening at that moment. Well, or I should say maybe 15 minutes mm -hmm. worth of time, kind of condensed into one. He had a little bit of storytelling license, let's say. There, there's a few things in the painting that are happening at the same time that actually maybe happened 10 minutes apart. Oh, but it was that close. That was narrow. But yeah. they happened close window. together, and he's trying to show all the interesting incidents. Um, for example, uh, Cushing is an artillery officer that was fighting in the angle. He's killed as the Confederates are overrunning his position. Uh, minutes later, Confederate General Armistead is killed, leading that breakthrough. In the painting, both Armistead and Cushing are still alive. They're just about, presumably, to be killed in the painting. Although, by the time Armistead gets to the high water mark, uh, Cushing would already be dead. But they're both famous stories, so we wanted to get them both into the painting. I think that's a very interesting point in that uh, <clears throat> this is, it's an historical document in and of itself, in that it was painted in 1884, the painting, okay? Um, 
And um, as Chris just explained, it's an historical document because it gives a snapshot of what was going on concurrently on the, you know, the pivotal turning point of uh, the American Civil War. And uh, once again, <clears throat> the whole thing is, uh, uh, you know, Pickett's charge, uh, the, the last desperate attempt of the Confederates to, uh, uh, to win uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, but it's the artist interpretation, okay, of those events, okay? Uh, so I, I think that needs to be said. Mm -hmm. um, the artist, he did his utmost to render it uh, accurately, yeah, by interviewing the participants, okay? and but in the in the final analysis, okay, it's the artist interpretation. Okay, so therefore, it, you know, it's 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 valuable uh, as a uh, you know or an artistic piece and a glimpse into history. Okay? When you were doing the photography for the book, did you just absolutely fall in love with certain little segments of it? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, what what I really enjoyed doing, and I, and I think what what the book helps to illustrate is uh, the book gives you an opportunity to put the painting in your lap. Um, and by that I mean, you know, you you can focus in on a very narrow, uh, no pun intended there, by the way. <laughs> you can focus in on a very narrow section of the of the of the photo, uh, of the painting. You know, by by taking these photos, and uh, it gives you a whole different perspective. Yeah, but my, um, I have to say, I do have one one favorite photograph in the whole book, and, um, and it's a perspective that not too many people are going to get the opportunity to see. And uh, uh, these old bones climbed up the ladder up the side of the, the cyclorama to get up on top and to shoot down, uh, and. Um, to me, I mean, it, 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 you know, it, it, it's a great photo. Uh, part of the danger of being uh, of a photographer sometimes, you get emotionally involved in, in in some of these photographs, and you think, oh boy, I got the shot. You know, this, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, you think it's good. Right? Uh, other people may not, but uh, that one particular photograph of shooting up on top of the cyclorama uh, in the present in its present location to see what is uh, you know a, a panoramic view well what's above it the electronics uh, the lighting what goes into this program uh, that you don't see from uh, the viewing platform and I don't think you know general public doesn't get a chance to see that so yeah. I agree that's a good picture yeah I like that's that a good one. Shot. I like that shot too yeah. but Bill makes another good point that it's almost like you can take the painting home with you and that was sort of my goal when I first envisioned this um, there's so much detail. There's so many things yeah. happening in that painting. Yeah. I work with it every day and even years you know, into writing this book and everything. I was still noticing little things I had never noticed before. And that's why we got Bill. We needed someone that could take really, <laughs> really good pictures, really clear, and things that are focused in with extreme close-ups that you'd almost have to have binoculars up there on the platform to see these things in this great of detail. Um, and Bill did a great job, and our publisher did a great job of, you know, real high-quality printing that you can see all these minute details. Well, when somebody goes to the Cyclorama, they're looking at the vastness of it, but you focused on the right. yeah, each um, little item. Yeah, it was to, to flesh out the text that uh, they were they were explaining. And... Um, 
I think, I don't know if I completed my thought before, but I've seen this a number of times, and just to reiterate what Chris says, I mean, every time I go in there, I see something different. Me too. You know? Uh, and, um, you know, they've been, you know, associated with this and looking and digging into it and research, and, uh, uh, you know, every time you go up there, you see something different. And this gives you an opportunity to go up there and go like this. As they say, you can't smell a painting. But the book helps you get closer to it. Do you each have a favorite uh, vignette in the painting? Mm. You can name more than one. Well, I'll tell you, one of my favorites is on the page right in front of you, that horse bolting to the rear. It just looks so real. You can almost see the terror in that horse's eyes and the steam coming out of his nostrils. Uh, Maybe not my favorite incident in the painting, but it's definitely my favorite horse in the painting. It just looks so real and looks so in motion. It really, really, I'm a big fan of that. I like getting to know the author because he's standing in the painting. The, the artist. Oh, the artist, the artist oh, He put himself in the painting. He did. And that was pretty common back at, in that era of the 1800s. Um, partly done for, because they modeled, like he had a team of some 14 to 20 people at any given time, and they would dress up and model the parts they were painting for reality, for that sense of movement and the wrinkles in the fabric and that sort of thing. But it's also his signature. He didn't actually sign the work other than putting his own image in the painting. And another, um, another feature of the fact that they, that was common was that although he appears in the painting, he's an observer. He doesn't try to change history by putting himself in there as an active participant. He's standing there just observing, although he is in his officer's uniform. That's a bit odd. <laughs> One, go ahead. No, it brings up a point. I just wanted, uh, I was waiting for Sue to bring it out, and 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 uh, in that there were a team of artists that that uh, created this. So maybe they had an artist that was specialized in the anatomy of a horse. That would they would just paint the horses. Is that, mm -hmm. or am I correct? And somebody would uh, maybe be a, a more skilled at uh, doing the human face. So. Uh, that's, there's, there's so many little interesting things you, uh, uh, that are covered and uh, that they touch upon in, in the book. Well, one of the liberties the artist took with it is to paint Abraham Lincoln into the painting. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Well, there's a hospital scene, uh, which would be to the northeast of the viewing platform, and there's a figure being carried to the hospital that looks just like Lincoln. And the story goes that the artist came to Gettysburg in 1914 and visited the painting at the original temporary building that we were talking about. Uh, and he supposedly told that story, and he said that the wounded president symbolizes a wounded nation. And that's why he snuck Lincoln in there. Um, we, there's no documentation except for that story has been told ever since then. So. We're pretty sure it's true. I mean, if you look at the guy, it looks just like him. I don't think well, it's an accident. Plus, we know that the gentleman he interviewed, uh, his name was Charles Cobean. He was the manager when the painting was in private hands in Gettysburg in that first building. He was the manager from the late teens all the way up to, to 1942 when he retired and the Park Service acquired it. So he actually was there and spoke to that artist. He's the one who's, who is the source of the information that the dog portrayed in the painting was the artist's personal dog. So so I think it's, it's, it's solid, I think, uh, oral history. It, we've not found any written documentation, but sometimes you don't. 
Are there other liberties that the artist took with it? Things he placed in there that... One of my favorites is the, the pair of brothers that are standing right at the heart of the action. And they're not easy, they're not hard to find because you just look for the two guys that don't seem to notice there's a battle going on right behind them. <laughs> Their names are Robert and Peter Bird, and they fought on the first day's battlefield up to the north and west of town. Their unit was nowhere near the center of the Union line that day, but there they are. And one has a wounded arm, one has a wounded leg. They did receive those wounds in battle, but not there at that spot. But we know they were on the battlefield in 1882 when the artist came to do some of his research and they struck up a friendship. And interestingly, he painted them in looking like they were 20 years later, not as young men in the battle, but as middle-aged men in their 40s. And Robert E. Lee is kind of a tiny dot in the picture, right? Yeah, he's way out in the distance, but if you really zoom in on it, you can tell he's got white hair and he's on a light-colored horse, his horse Traveler. Uh, and I'm guessing that in the painting, he's maybe four inches tall, maximum. But he's where he should you be. Know, on he's a 42-foot painting, that's pretty yeah. small. He's over on the far uh, ridge, and that's where he But they even took the time to get details like that accurate. I think that's really neat. Uh, also, another great thing you asked about accuracy, I think it's a a testament to the artist that he would take the suggestions from the veterans and when he modified the painting that's what he used to make those modifications so he was so interested in it being realistic that he was willing to change his art because of what the actual people that were there had to say I think that's a great a great uh, thing you can say about him. He also painted in a war correspondent uh, in the New York version, Charles Coffin, war correspondent for the Boston Journal. Mm -hmm. Is that that's not in the Gettysburg one, or is it in the Gettysburg? No, he's one? not. Uh, and that was one of the people that visited the painting while it was in Boston. Uh, so they were actually taking these suggestions from the visitors as they were improving the different versions. Uh, it must have been too difficult to paint him into ours because they probably would have changed the whole area of the weed field. But, so they didn't but paint I him believe into ours. part of this, okay, so imagine your very first one, you're new, you've done your research, you couldn't possibly get it all, you make some mistakes. The second one, some of the mistakes are corrected, but not all of them. Although by the third one, in my personal opinion, the third version is the most accurate. It's the best with the portrayals. But by now, the artist is hobnobbing with a lot of the veterans, especially the officers, and especially those that are politically connected. So New York is fraught with those kind of things where, oh, sure, yeah, where were you? I'll put you in. That kind of thing. So I tend to go with the Philadelphia version as the best of the, of the four. Um, you also, is there any, this may seem like an odd question, are there any moments of humor in there where you see kind of a funny little scene? I guess not. No, not, not really. That, not that no, leaps no, out. He's trying mm -hmm. to be pretty serious. Yeah, he is. Um, and there's, you also say it here there's poppies in the wheat field which don't exist in America? Well, they didn't at the time. They're, they're a very European native plant and they tend to grow prolifically on disturbed soil, which is why they grow on battlefields, which of course are all over Europe. So you know the poem in Flanders Fields, the poppies grow. But if you're gonna hire a European artist, he's not gonna make that connection. And he needs, he needs these brightly colored, contrasting things to show. So if you're gonna put bright red flowers in the foreground, their absence in the background gives a sense of depth. So that's their purpose in the painting. But he just randomly chose something he was familiar with 
not thinking about their origins. And there's another item that they can tell you about is is, is the haystack right. that 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 appears. Uh, I think that's an interesting story. Again, very European in style. Yeah. So uh, you may want. You guys might want well, to expound on it. Many people come and see see the painting, and, and that's one of the main points of, of comment is that these things that look like straw huts appear in the painting. Well, and, and a lot of people even go on in their conversation to say things like, well, they look really European. Well, first of all, let me point out that Adams County, Pennsylvania was settled by Germans, and Germany is solidly in Europe. So, so there is, there is a, a source for that. But the, the thing is that those, just because they're, they're not familiar to the modern person, because we have mechanized farm equipment now that bales hay or rolls it up in these massive rolls, where back in this era, they would mound them up with a very loose structure of sticks sticking between them to allow them to mount them very high. We have photographs of those straw stacks standing right there on the battlefield in that era. But the reason they look odd is because you'll see off in the background here by a straw stack are soldiers cutting away the sides of the straw of the haystacks where they can reach, bundling those bundles of hay up and sending them off where the soldiers are being cared for, the wounded. So you're going to have this structure that looks like this, and then there's these bare sides that go down, and they do look a little bit hut-like. They're just a little too tidy, that's all. <laughs> you have a, a couple pictures in here of the key, K-E-Y, that someone would be given. Is this when you would go to see the Cyclorama? You'd, be given you'd, a you'd buy a souvenir program, and that map would sort of fold out in the program about that big. And it was a round drawing with little numbers telling you who was who. And uh, what's interesting is they changed the keys as they moved it in different cities. And a lot of times mentioning more people from the hometown. So a big part of the book for me was to look at every key that's ever been made, including the modern ones, try to figure out everyone that was identified, who was who, and then who was who where. You know, in other words, uh, there's a unit in there that's listed as the 7th Michigan out in Chicago. When it gets to Pennsylvania, they're the 72nd Pennsylvania. When it's in New York, it's the 42nd New York. So they were just naming that one unit after the home crowd, so to speak. So they're marketing, marketing. to the home guys. Uh, also using those keys, I found some people that were mentioned that, let's say, they weren't real famous during the Battle of Gettysburg. There's one that says, General Martin fought here. And there was no General Martin in the Battle of Gettysburg. But I did some research. I found that there was a Captain Martin. And after the war, Captain Martin was an honorary general of the Massachusetts State Militia. So they would have called him General Martin in 1884. But the important thing was he became the mayor of Boston. <laughs> and then he visited the painting. And then next thing you know, he starts getting mentioned in the key. So it's, it's a lot of times it's not who you were in 1863, but who you were in 1884 that determines whether you get mentioned in those keys. And when I could find little stories like that, it really fascinated me, you know, uh, uh, especially guys that actually visited it and then later were mentioned in the keys. I thought that was really neat. Is the, there a key like this for the one that's in Gettysburg now? Today they have a big picture on the wall with little numbers on it. When you leave, that you go through a key. Um, I think there's 54 things in the key. I was able to find 151 things in the painting. 
So that was a big reason why we wanted to do this book to, you know, really expand on some of these more obscure, more distant uh, farms, groups of soldiers, terrain features. Everything I could identify, I tried to identify. You were all licensed Gettysburg guides? Yes. Mm -hmm. what, what does that mean to be a licensed Gettysburg guide? Well, um, speaking for myself, it's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Uh, and there are, today there are probably about 155 of us. Uh, we, are, we give tours of the, of the Gettysburg battlefield, um, get to uh, tell the story uh, to uh, people who come visit Gettysburg. And, uh, and uh, we get to literally get to meet people from, from all over the world, you know. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tight-knit organization. Uh, you know, uh, we're supportive of one another. Um, we, uh, you know, uh, we're celebrating our 100th year, 100th year anniversary. Uh, the, the licensed battlefield guys. Uh, and uh, it's through the support of the guides uh, uh, that, uh, you know, we bounce things off them, you know. We get, we get information, give and take. Uh, we, have, we have some very learned people uh, on, the, uh, on the guide force. You know, uh, it's a cross-section of, uh, of uh, you know, population. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's a great leveling force because it doesn't make any difference who you are, where you came from, or what you did. You know, if you're a guide, you have the... Uh, uh, the common interest and the emotional connection to uh, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, the land, and the American Civil War. It's How do you get to be one? It's very difficult. Uh, it took me almost five years of study. Uh, there's a written test given by the park every two years, and maybe about 150 to 200 people take the written test, and they only accept the 20 best scores. Then, over the next two years, they take those 20 people and they give you oral exams. And you have to drive around the battlefield with a guide and a ranger in the car with you and give a two-hour tour of the battle. And the whole time you're doing it, they're, they're sitting down, writing down everything you did, good, bad, indifferent. When you're all done, they give you copious pages of notes telling you everything that you need to improve. You have about a month to do it, and you come back, you do it again, and you either pass or fail. If you fail, you have to wait till the next written test comes around and start all over again. So it's a very difficult process. Bill less because he was my uh, evaluator on the written or the oral examination. <laughs> so uh, what is it about Gettysburg that made you want to go through all that you have to do to be a licensed guide? That's a good question. Um, I was an emergency department nurse by career, but I always had a kind of a side interest in history, especially American history. But one of my favorite things to do as a, just a hobby was to go to estate sales. So I went to an estate sale one day and I bought some books and one of them was a little leather book, about three by two, and it was a diary written over the three years of war that this man experienced as a soldier. And he was from where I'm from. And suddenly history became a human face, not dead guys and dates, which is what I thought it was in high school. I had no love of history at all in high school, but once I was able to make that connection, and I think a lot of people agree, that once you get an emotional connection to the story, it pulls you in, and not too many people can get out alive. <laughs> <laughs> not one of those that didn't get out alive. How much of your time does it take up? 
I'm a full I'm I'm a full time guide now. I have sort of retired from nursing, and so I am one of the one of the few guides though that works in that capacity, but in a different setting. I work for the Gettysburg Foundation. I lead corporate leadership tours. We've gotten study leadership that was displayed on this on the on our battlefield. And Bill, what keeps you coming back to Gettysburg? The men, the story, uh, the connection. Um, I, my, my story I don't think is unique, but um, I was probably around 15 years of age when the, my, uh, my parents took me down to, to visit the Gettysburg Battlefield. Uh, had no idea at that time that I was bit by the Gettysburg bug. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was there lying dormant. Uh, Gettysburg uh, movie came out. Uh, which uh, awakened uh, my interest. Um, the Ken Burns series, uh, PBS. Um, and then um, my eldest sister presented me with an old family photograph. Uh, and here's this uh, big-eared kid. I look like a taxi coming down the street with the, with the doors open, you know. <laughs> Sitting up on top of a cannon at the Getty uh, in the National Cemetery, and my sister said, "Do you remember this? Remember where this was taken?" And I was just flooded with uh, with, with, with memories of that trip, uh, and um, that's my story. And I don't think that's uncommon. Uh, it's that, uh, as Sue said, and I'm sure Chris will attest to the same thing. Uh, it's a very common story. Somewhere along the line, either as a, as a, as a child or as an adult, uh, you came to Gettysburg and you got hooked. Yeah. And we keep that in mind when we're dealing, especially with students, that we, we wanted, we're not there to turn them into history buffs. We're there to plant a seed. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. That's going to have to be the last word. We are out of time. Our guests are the authors of this book, The Gettysburg Cyclorama. They are Chris Brenneman, Sue Boardman, and Bill Dowling. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.